Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Markets Disruptor Show. And today I'm joined by Luke Grauman for another time. Um, he is the founder and president of FFTT. Uh, he's a, it's a financial newsletter, a great one, by the way, one that I subscribe to. I'll make sure to link it down below. But um, man, he has so many good insights that really match up a lot with what I have to say, but he's uh, got so much more insight I want to dig into today. So Luke, thanks, thanks so much for taking time to come with, sit down with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on again, Mark. It's great to be here. Yeah, Luke. So um, yeah, I know, uh, you know, you have a you have a worldview that I think is is unique, but it's one that kind of aligns with what I have. Um, and I and you know I follow you on Twitter and I get your newsletter, and so I kind of see the stuff that you're putting out. Um, I know you you're you're definitely in deeper than into you know, a lot of the stuff than I am. Um, a couple of things that you've been talking about lately are you know inflation and deflation, which of course are big topics, and um, disinflation or whatever. But even you know I I know you've been starting to talk about like stock assets and even alternative assets, gold, Bitcoin, et cetera. So I want to cover all that stuff. But maybe why don't we start with kind of uh, where we're at right right now? I know in your newsletter you had talked about like inflation is picking up sharply, and so let's start with inflation. Um, it seems like a very nuanced argument. Um, obviously, the Fed tries to give us their CPI. Um, I like to say that's kind of like a political tool. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing lumber, you know, go crazy and steel and concrete. And I mean, everything else is going up. Um, so tell us, tell us what, what you mean by inflation is picking up sharply. What are we looking at right now? I think, I, I think I, when, when I wrote that, I'm just looking at the prices of stuff and the chart, it's all, almost all the same chart. It is limit up, limit up, limit up, <laughs> copper, corn, uh, uh, lumber. Uh, you're seeing shrinkflation. You know, someone had a tweet the other day showing the same paper towels at Costco six months yeah. later, it's a 14% smaller package. Um, I, I think the price of stuff is going up a lot. And I think ultimately uh, the fed is in a bit of a bind because I think, as I read a lot of, of, of other work out there and listen to the financial media, to me, it remains poorly understood and rarely discussed that once the debt to GDP is as high as it is in the U.S. at 130 percent, you're out of options. You have to. There, there's only three options. It's, 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 it's default, it's inflate, or it's hyperinflate. That's it. Default which are which are kind of the same. Exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, hyperinflation is a little bit more of a political phenomenon, and and to me, I you you hear some of the great ones in history, like like Weimar Germany, etc. I don't think that's on the table for the U.S. for a number of reasons. Hey guys, let me just interrupt this interview real quick just to plug the show sponsor, and that is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi is doing amazing things in the Bitcoin finance space. As a matter of fact, they've cracked some really big news by bringing on the ex-CFTC um, chair, Chris Giancarlo, um, and they are one of the most transparent, most heavily regulated um, companies inside the United States, which gives me a lot of trust um, into what their services are. Now, I've recently did a video talking about how to retire off of Bitcoin. And you can do that by leveraging debt and interest against Bitcoin. And BlockFi is the the number one company in the United States or maybe in the world to go to and use. Um, they are leading the charge. They're paying interest on your Bitcoin if you park it with them, or you can borrow against it. Now, as I broke down in that video, you can borrow against your Bitcoin. And when you take debt against it, it's not taxable. It's not a taxable event. You can use that debt for anything that you want, including to live off of, to leverage up and buy more, or roll it into another asset. Um, you can do something like I've done recently, like sell some real estate, put that money into Bitcoin, 
now as that Bitcoin price has risen, I'm able to borrow against it and go back and buy the same real estate or something similar. And I still own the Bitcoin and I also own the new asset as well. Lots of ways you can do this. Um, and BlockFi is the company that I recommend. Down in the description, I have a link that you can click on. If you choose to use that link, you can earn up to $250 in Bitcoin just for using that link. So check out BlockFi now. But I do think that, you know, you say, okay, so we're not going to default on treasuries and entitlements nominally. And hyperinflation is highly unlike at least a currency destroying hyperinflation is as is, is, is classically defined as sort of 50% per month or more of inflation. And, and so it leaves you inflation. And, and I t bring that all back to the point that once you're at 130% debt to GDP, you, you don't have any other option. They, they, uh, the only Fed policy they really have is, is basically playing a game of these aren't the droids you're looking for. And you're seeing yeah. that from the Fed. You're seeing that from Powell, right? You have, you have Warren Buffett who owns whatever, you know, Berkshire Hathaway owns a wide swath of the U.S. economy. He's been doing this for 90 years uh, or he's, he's 90 years old. He's been doing this for, you know, 80, 70 of those years uh, on some level. And he comes out and says inflation's going crazy across all of our businesses. Mm -hmm. And like two hours later, Janet Yellen said, I don't think Biden's policies are leading to any inflation. And so it's like, who are you going to believe, you know, me or your, your lying eyes. Right. And so I think when I say inflation's really picking up, uh, the, what we have seen is, is the prices of, of lots of stuff rising rather rapidly. Uh, and then the question of course becomes, is it transitory or not? Um, and that's, that's a whole separate discussion. But when I say inflation's picking up, I'm just, I'm just watching the prices of stuff go up really rapidly. Yeah. So many, so many couple, well, a couple good things in there. One, um, yeah, it seems like everywhere we look in the media, like they're like trying to tell us that we're not seeing things that we're seeing. I was commented on someone's post earlier today about uh, Biden and his rambling and like everybody knows he's like losing his mind, but the, but the, but the media continues to tell us that he's not, but the world leaders, they all know, like everyone knows, like Putin called him out. Like, I mean, like everybody, like they're telling us, uh, and same thing with the, with the inflation, they're trying to tell us there's no inflation, but like everybody knows prices are going up. I mean, just look at gas or look at meat or look at milk. I mean, you name it. Um, and so because it's like this nuanced argument, um, it seems like, you know, depending on where you live in the country, real estate has gone up really inflated or it hasn't inflated that much. So it kind of depends on what you're buying. Um, and so um, do you think almost, is it a better way to look at like, I mean, is it helpful for, I guess, individual investors to kind of abandon like that CPI metric and maybe look at like M1, M2 type uh, numbers as inflation? I, yeah, it might be, it might be. I think ultimately, I think it's important for individual investors to just understand the context of where we are, where it has been a long, long time since the Western world broadly, the U.S. In, uh, in particular, has been in this position where they, they need to lie to you. They're going to lie to you. Um, and it's fascinating. It's really a fascinating study in, in, in sociology or human psychology where if you get the right people to lie to you, people will believe you, believe it. And if you repeat the lie often enough, people will believe it. And so I just think it's important for people uh, for individual investors to think independently and, and look at the context. There is no way out unless they inflate. They have to inflate. And given the high level of debt to GDP, it's going to have to be a pretty significant uh, inflation to so, that, so that nominal GDP can grow rapidly 
while yields don't respond because they, they, they need inflation without yields responding so that they can basically delever the government balance sheet uh, from 130% today to something far south of 130% in the not too distant future. So you know they've got to get from point A to point B. You know the only way that, you know, that they can really do it is, is via inflation at some rate. And so I think you just have to really um, be independent, to, you know, be willing to think independently and just, you know, tr- trust your own lying eyes. You know, when yeah. you go to the grocery store and you buy the same <laughs> stuff and it goes up a bunch, uh, that's inflation. And they can say it is. They can, you know, when your kids go through the stuff faster because the packages are smaller, it's inflation. And for me, I, I don't get upset about it per se. It is what it is. I think it's just important to, to take a step back from it, look at it objectively. The world's been here before. It's happened over and over and over. Uh, it's just for the last 30 to 40 years, it's only happened in emerging markets primarily. The Western world, we've not had to experience this in, in quite some time. So I think it's really just about then positioning your assets in those, um, in those sectors that do well with uh, where, where inflation is greater than anticipated. Uh, or greater than reported, because really, if you say inflation's three and it's actually six, how that's going to show up is it means every company, by and large, is going to report uh, they're getting a three percent free revenue pickup uh, in uh, for companies uh, relative to their funding costs, which are pegged at the at the lower rate that are based on the CPI. So they're borrowing at the fraud, you know, they're borrowing at the I don't want to say fraudulent, but they're borrowing at the understated rate. Right. They're they're reporting revenues at the real rate. Uh, or, or their revenues are benefiting from the real rate. And because they have leverage on their books, generally speaking, given the broad state of, of corporate uh, corporate borrowing, uh, those earnings are going to drop down to the pretext line, uh, or those, 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 that inflation pickup is going to pick, drop right to the pretext line. Um, so that's a good environment, all else equal, for corporate America. It's a, all else equal. It's a good environment for stocks. Um, mm-hmm. You know, certain stocks more than others, and you can get into that. But I think it's also good for gold. I think it's good for Bitcoin. Um, basically, sectors that have assets that can, you know, they, they can more accurately reflect what's actually going on. And you say that's good for those assets, certain stocks or gold or Bitcoin or whatever. And is it good for those assets because people realize they're losing purchasing power to the inflation? And so they're basically forced to get out of the dollar. I mean, it's hot potato, right? So they're just trying to find any other asset they can go into to try to keep up with the purchasing power or the rate of inflation. I think it really comes down to uh, there's the global bond market is $130 trillion. And I think that bond market, you're basically watching the bond market try to squeeze into all these other asset classes at the end Mm -hmm. of the day is really what we're talking about. And I think that's really the playbook is the last time we had a global sovereign debt bubble burst was in the immediate aftermath of World War One. And when you look then, the six major industrial powers were the US, the UK, Germany, France, Russia, Japan, and over a 12 year time horizon, give or take 12 to 12 to 13 year time horizon, the sovereign debt of those six nations fell 75 to 100% against the neutral reserve asset at the time, which was gold. Um, and so, uh, and that was all out of the currency. So you, 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 you know how they're going to run the playbook. After World War II, the last time we saw this, uh, the U.S. debt to GDP went from 110% to 50% in five years. And a big part of that was for the first year, year and a half after the war, U.S. real rates were negative 14%. So basically, you're, you lost 
you know, whatever, 14% compounded for a couple of years. And then the, the, the negative real rates declined, got, got less negative over the course of that time. But basically, uh, you, had real, you, you had real growth, but then you also had very significant inflation. And so your nominal GDP growth was really high. Your yields were capped by the Fed in that particular period of time. And uh, basically, you delevered over the backs of the real value of bonds. And so I think what we're watching is just when I say those assets are good or benefit from it, uh, this, this, this growing realization amongst the $130 trillion global bond market that this is the only way out. And if that's the only way out, then allocations to bonds are too high and almost without fail. What's your allocation? It's, you know, there's almost no answer that isn't too high. Yeah. <laughs> and as more people realize that now there's, there's, you know, the, the, the bonds are held for other reasons than just investment income, of course, right? There's collateral, there's duration matching, liability matching. There, there's other things going on there. But at the end of the day, uh, some big chunk of the bond market can't compensate you for what authorities have to do to get out of this to avoid nominal yeah. default. You've talked, uh, you, you know, you keep talking about that 130% debt to GDP. And, you know, I think about like the Keynesian multiplier, like whenever a nation gets over 90, they're not getting enough growth. It's like a, not a, not, not a one-to-one. And so the chance of them being able to grow out of it is, is, uh, is very difficult. Um, and it seems like that 130 is also kind of a number where like, you know, maybe it's kind of like the point of no return, right? We've seen like Greece go over 130. They're not able to kind of really pull back from that. Um, you said at one point the U.S. got over to 150. So, I mean, do you think there's still hope to grow out of a 130 deficit at the rate we're going with the with the rate of growth that we have in front of us? Not on a real basis. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I always leave out the 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 um, the caveat that if we get some sort of economic productivity miracle, right? So we get, I don't know, ec- you know, nuclear fusion that's commercially developable, developable, and and uh, commercializable on a decentralized basis rolled out over the next three years, right? Okay, then, yeah, I think we're going to have a huge productivity pickup. You're going to basically have free energy forever for everybody. Yeah, okay, so we probably can grow out of it. But (laughs) failing some sort of really enormous productivity enhancement like that, um, it's unlikely. Now, nominally, nominal growth to get out, it's just a policy choice. And that's what I think people don't realize is it's just a policy choice. like Biden does, you know, whatever, six trillion in spending he's announced, and he does another six trillion in the back half, another six trillion in the first half of next year, another six trillion in the back half of next year, and the Fed buys enough of all of it. Uh, look, we could wake up and have US GDP at, you know, what is it today, 20, 22 trillion? We could be at 40 trillion US GDP in two years, nominally. Now, inflation right, is going to yeah. go nuts. And, yeah. you know, the Fed might have to do yield curve control. In fact, they probably would, is our view. But, the point is, is that we could wake up and U.S. debt to GDP might be, you know, uh, instead of 130, it might be down to 90. It might be down to 80. And at that point, then you can start talking about different normalization of policy uh, now that basically bondholders will have lost a lot of money on a real basis. Yeah, the problem that I see with that, though, is that. Um, that's government spending picking up, right? So like we need like private sector, like real growth, right? It's like, I like to say that the government cannot give something it has not taken. So um, as we've seen the government, you know, public uh, uh, spending going up used to be like private sector jobs were the best. Now the government jobs are the best. Uh, The government's like picking up that slack. And if it was just that easy, then why not just go dump $10 trillion out this year? Uh, But like, that's not real spending. That's just, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's from one pocket to the other sort of thing. So it almost didn't, I mean, not all spending is good spending, right? I mean, debt 
the debt spending at the end of the day is going to lower the growth that we have in front of us or no? I, it, I think it, the short answer is yes. The longer version I think is that ultimately it depends on what you spend it on. If you spend a bunch of money on uh, things like, unfortunately, entitlements, very low productivity, um, you know, where you're, you're in, and that's just the nature of healthcare, uh, broadly speaking. I think if you spend it on, you know, dropping bombs in Iraq to, in, to basically ensure that China gets access to Iraq's oil supply, yeah. as we've done for 20 years in a really a very big own goal, and that's being yeah. generous and polite, uh, then yeah, that's, that's probably not very helpful. But I think if you do things that, um, that do have a productivity enhancement, right? You know, the, the U.S. government building the Eisenhower Highway system was enormously uh, productivity enhancing. Um, mm-hmm. If you did, you know, a 5G rollout across the U.S. and rural America and, 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 and boosted educational uh, investment for young people across the country, there is over time an enormous productivity payback. And so I think sure. it really depends on where you spend the money. And, yeah. but to your point, it does imply that now that we've gotten to this point, you know, there's a reason why China keeps doing more and more and more and more once the government's the center of the economy is yeah. you can't there. There's no the more the government gets involved, the less the more atrophied sort of that private sector muscle becomes in terms yeah. of being able to spend as much as you need to drive the growth. So that's why, you know, people think, well, this is transitory and don't worry, the government's going to back back up. I don't think people have realized this is we basically COVID has basically shifted the U.S. to a U.S. economy with Chinese characteristics model. And anytime the government doesn't do enough for the foreseeable future, um, it's, it's going to be a tough economy. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think, I mean, for sure, as you said, like there's certain spending that could be better and some that could be worse. In the world wars, we, we saw the U.S. spend a lot of money on on education to bring you know people into technology and things like that. And I think that paid off dividends for us. And so that would be one good way to do that. The other thing I was saying is that um, to your point, you know, as any company or government gets bigger and bigger, it just starts to move slower and slower and slower. And so that's, that's kind of there. Um, and then to your point, you had said that, you know, if we came out with fusion tomorrow, like that could be a big productivity boom. Unfortunately, uh, in your other comparisons, we can see kind of where that money is going and it kind of helps predict kind of where we're going. Um, now, um, moving on, you had talked about yields and real yields, and then you even mentioned yield curve control real quick. Um, so let's talk about that, right? So like uh, if growth stays down and debt continues to pick up, I mean, the only way to do that is through, uh, you know, probably to control that through yield curve control. Talk about that real quick. But also, um, if the government's already buying the bonds, which they are, isn't that already yield curve control? I mean, they haven't come out and officially said we're doing it, but they are, right? Yeah, I would say we've, we've, said, we've called it yield curve management, right? So they're not <laughs> saying... They're not saying, hey, the the, the tenure ain't going over two. That's our that's our line in the sand. And I think they will avoid that as long as they can. And they hope they never have to do that, because once they do that, they're never getting out of that, in my view, because basically the entire bond market will get sold to them and their balance sheet will go from eight trillion to 10 trillion to 20 trillion to 40 trillion very rapidly, in my view, you know, six to 12 months, 18 months. Um, but, but the, but the broader point stands in terms of, um, they, they, they are effectively managing that process. And, and that's, that's sort of, that's, that's sort of where it's, 
you know, they're, they're, they're trying to sort of still ride two horses with one ass, as I've been saying, is they want, yeah. they want that stimulus. They want that growth. Uh, they don't want to get trapped by into yield curve control, but ultimately uh, post COVID the debt got to this level where, you know, we, we wrote about it last week, borrowing some data from, uh, from a letter from Hirschman Capital that they published last year that 98% of the time when a nation gets to 130% debt to GDP, right. they, they default and it's mostly via inflation. And right. the, one, the one time it hasn't happened is Japan. And there's a number of reasons why the U.S. is not like Japan at all. Um, so that, again, it comes back and I'm still not seeing this. People are still discussing everything we're discussing in this recovery as if, as if we're not at 130% that the GDP, as if we're right. just like we were in the 80s and the 90s when we were at 50% that the GDP, 60. And it's, it's night and day that you are, you are in a different operating environment. And so, you know, to me, that tells me too, there, that, that's a signpost. The fact that nobody's talking about that yet, they're going to be talking about it. And when they talk about it, I suspect the prices of things like Bitcoin and gold and equities are going to be a lot higher than they are today. Yeah. So let's uh, let's transition into that, because that's actually the thing that kind of sparked this conversation. You had put out a tweet um, where you had said that gold is going to 50,000 or Bitcoin going to 1 million. Well, you didn't say it's going to, but you said gold going to 50K or Bitcoin going to 1 million is not a threat to USD. So most people think that um, Ray Dalio came out and said they're going to shut it down because it's a threat to USD. You're saying that it's not. You said it's the only way the US can win the so-called great power competition. Um, if they don't go to the moon, US loses to China. That's a, that's a, I think that probably blows everyone out of the water. Like, what the heck does that mean? Can you unpack that for us? Sure. Yeah, so... The, 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 I think there's I think there is a a civil war of sorts in Washington amongst policymakers as we speak, and I think that civil war are those that are quite frankly fighting the last war, um, which is then those are the sort of the U.S. Treasury and dollar hegemony crowd, you know that U.S. dollar and and Treasury are critical to U.S. dollar hegemony. And that is the post 1971 uh, and particularly post 1980 world order. Um, and that's those are the people, generally speaking, that say if, if Bitcoin or, or those viewpoint, that viewpoint leads to a, a this this, uh, you know, the, the postulation that uh, gold going to 50,000 or Bitcoin going to a million or some high number, pick your number, is really bad for the dollar. It's a threat to dollar hegemony. And and. Critically, on the merits of that argument, if the status quo of the post $71 status quo stays as it is, uh, those people are right, that it is a threat to that hegemony. You're, you're right. Now, the other side of this, what I would say civil war that's going on, and, and it really gets to the crux of this argument, is um, I don't, I, the, that, that side of the ar argument ignores what the U.S. defense establishment, the U.S. intelligence establishment have been saying, which is that system is a critical and acute threat to U.S. national security. We are seeing it as we speak, as we're hearing about semiconductor shortages. The Defense Department's been warning about the hollowing out of U.S. manufacturing supply chains for going on 10 years publicly and probably longer than that privately. And, that, uh, and that's because of the hemorrhage. Yeah, the, the, the old, this, this system that if you only look at it as it relates to the dollar, yeah, it's true. But what that system requires 
is the U.S. to run ever greater deficits, hollow out more and more of its manufacturing base uh, to places like China in particular. It's, it's, it's working class, it's middle class. Uh, and so what you end up is you end up with this politically toxic environment as you offshore these, these good jobs that, that generally correlate very well with social stability, uh, these manufacturing union middle class jobs. Uh, it leads you to a position where your military uh, becomes critically dependent on components made by your most likely adversary in any yeah. upcoming conflict, China. Um, and, and, and it, it, you, so you basically are in this, this environment where, okay, if we continue with this, the terminal outcome of this is China has the dollars to buy up the world's finite resources on the cheap, protected by the U.S. military. China can use those dollars to build their own military to rival the U.S.'s military. China will gain control of critical supply chains like semiconductors, pharmaceuticals, et cetera, which we have seen in real time, and uh, ultimately be able to call the shots. They will build, there'll be a bigger economy, they'll be growing faster, they will have the intellectual property, they will be able to have the geopolitical and economic cloud. And so there's that's why I say these the dollar hegemony people looking at it strictly uh, from that standpoint uh, are fighting the last war. Uh, the, the dollar as structured post-71 has become a burden. And the defense and the intelligence establishments have been telling us that. So the question then is, is that you often get is, OK, well, if the dollar, if we need to change the dollar system, I'm not saying you got to end dollar reserve status. Uh, but what you need to do is instead of having a system where the dollar is the global reserve currency and the U.S. Treasury bond is the primary reserve asset where these imbalances are stored, you need to replace the Treasury bond with something else as your primary reserve asset. That's really the problem here. Hey, sorry to interrupt this video just one more time. I'm not running Google ads, so it's actually way less interruption than I normally would have on a video. Um, and that's because it's sponsored by BlockFi. Um, they are opening up the world of Bitcoin and financial products, offering to pay you interest on your Bitcoin, um, better than owning a rental property that you have to manage and control and have the risks. You can just earn interest on it or you can leverage against it. Now, I plan to hold my Bitcoin forever and literally never sell my Bitcoin. So how do you do that? Well, if I need money, I don't want to sell that Bitcoin. I'm going to pay tax on it, all right? I'm going to end up with less and I don't have the Bitcoin anymore. So a better way to do it is to borrow against the Bitcoin. So I've put all my money into Bitcoin. If I want to buy a car or I want to buy a house, I can borrow against it at very, very low competitive rates, get my house, get my car, whatever that may be, and get to keep the Bitcoin. Now, I've done a whole video on this. Uh, you can find it. I'll link it down in the description below how to retire off of Bitcoin without paying taxes. And you can do that with BlockFi services. Um, I'll, I'll link to the video down below. I'm also going to put a link to BlockFi. If you choose to click on that link to check them out, you can earn up to $250 in free Bitcoin just for using that link. And that's it. Let's go ahead and get back to the interview. So the question I always get then is, is okay, well, who's going to replace it? And there's really only two regions or countries that are big enough and economically powerful enough to do that. It's the Eurozone uh, or it's China. Japan's not big enough. The uh, UK is not big enough. And those are the other two in the, in the uh, um, SDR basket. Nobody else is big enough. The problem is, is Neither Europe nor China wants the, the, the burden of, of having their sovereign debt be the reserve asset of the world because it requires them to hollow out their manufacturing sector, offshore their middle and working class jobs. Uh, and again, it, it particularly for China, uh, politically toxic, 
uh, and, and, and weakens the nation over time. And the Chinese, unlike the US, plan longer term uh, than we do. Uh, so once you realize, okay, A, if we keep the status quo system going, we're going to be basically beholden to China, not able to defend ourselves. B, we need to change the structure of the system so that treasuries are no longer the primary reserve asset. Then C, we know the Europeans don't want it, the Chinese don't want it, and the others can't have it. So we come to the conclusion is you have to have some sort of neutral reserve asset. Basically, it's something that's nobody's issuance. And you come to the conclusion that's gold, that's Bitcoin. And after that, the list gets very short. And I think, quite frankly, gold is, um, I think, on a number of levels amongst the central banking community uh, in, in particular, that's the best option. You've seen the movements of gold. You've seen central bank buying of gold since 2008. You've seen uh, um, movements to China, Russia, et cetera, elsewhere. Um, and that's when I say, but the problem is, is gold at 1700 bucks with a giant paper market attached to it can't do the job. It, it needs to be made much bigger to settle trade. And in particular, settle commodity trade. Because when you really look at what creates the imbalances in the global economy, it's these commodity and particularly oil and gas uh, trade imbalances. So you would need to make gold or Bitcoin much, much bigger relative to global trade and energy trade in particular to serve the role as a neutral reserve asset. And so when you sort of walk through this daisy chain of events, what you realize is that if, if, if the U.S. actually transitions to the system, gold goes to the moon or Bitcoin goes to the moon or they both go to the moon, we will have made a transition from where we are now, where we are losing, we are getting creamed, we are being hollowed out to a system where we can line up and compete, where suddenly if it's a neutral reserve asset, the systems compete on their merits. Who's got the better rule of law? Who's got the better scientists? Who's got the better universities? Who's got the more attractive capital markets? Who's got uh, all the things that made and got America to where we were uh, post-World War II? Suddenly we're allowed to bring into play again. Because right now we're basically like fighting Mike Tyson with both hands strapped behind yeah. our back. It's, it's crazy. And this, what's strapped our hands behind our back is this post $71 system. Right. And, and so, because it's, our job is to run deficits and supply China with the dollars to buy up the world. That's it. Yeah. And yeah. so that's when I say, if, if, those, if, if those assets go to those prices, that's a great sign for America. That's great for America. Um, you've got a balanced system. We can actually begin to reinvest. You know, when you have the CEO of Intel come on 60 Minutes last night and say, look, not that long ago, 37% of global semiconductor manufacturing was done in the U.S. It's 12% now, and it's going lower in the midst of a semiconductor shortage. And then he says, oh, by the way, it might last for another two years. Like, we are seeing real time yeah. what the real cost of this is. So, yeah, if, if, you th you know, if, if you're in favor of, of you know, having to basically be at China's, you know, China's uh, uh, you know, wishes at by their leave on semiconductors, on antibiotics, on pharmaceuticals more broadly, then yeah, great. Hey, keep the dollar system as is. And, you know, and, you know, oh, by the way, wealth inequality will keep exploding in the United States. Social unrest will keep exploding in the United States. Political extremism will keep exploding in the U.S. That's great. Let's keep that system. But if those aren't things you're really interested in, and personally, I'm not, I have kids, yeah. uh, we have to move to this other system. And as I've said before, I think it's critical there are elements of the defense establishment and the intelligence establishment that understand this intimately, that this connection between this hollowing out, the threat to this hollowing out of operational and operational readiness and national security 
and the dollar system. So I think it's, it's, that's the fully flushed out unpacked version of that tweet. Yeah. So I think what you're describing is the Triffin's dilemma, right? Yep. Uh, and we knew that, I mean, we were told that a long time ago. Yep. Um, and what you're saying is not hypothetical. It's exactly what we're facing right now. It's I mean, happening to, as we speak. To your point, as we found out our, how, how fragile our supply chains were when the pandemic broke out, um, obviously lots of things are antibiotics. That's a big problem. Uh, but um, the rare earth uh, elements that we need, the military needs those to fight. And I think that's what you're hinting to. Um, the military cannot fight without those. And they come from China. So how can we go to war against China when we can't even uh, run our military? So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And um, you also talked about, you know, the U.S. having to offshore those dollars. And so we've, we've given those dollars to China. And you, you hinted to it, but again, it's not, it's not theoretical. It's happening. They've taken those dollars, and now they've built out the Belt and Road Initiative all over Europe. Um, my parents took a vacation to Antigua here in the Caribbean uh, a couple months ago and there's giant Chinese military bases being built there. And, um, they told them that it's not even local people working there. They, the Chinese bring their own people in to work on the bases. And so, um, it seems like what I've seen is that China has used the dollars to basically take over the world. Um, and then what I've seen, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong or expand on this, but then when those countries aren't even able to pay back those dollar denominated debts, then the U.S. opens up swap lines to bail those countries out as opposed to letting China take, take it in the shorts on that. Absolutely what we do. It's what we did in March of last year. People say, well, well we didn't give the swap lines to China, so we're cutting them off. Well, we're, we're giving the swap lines to China's creditors. So those dollars literally flow into those countries and yeah. then right into the pocket of China because those loans are secured by hard asset collateral. So China either gets the dollars they're owed or they get the hard asset collateral that they wanted anyway. Um, and so, yeah, they, they have absolutely used this dollar system against us. Uh, and it's incredible. You had a former uh, an anonymous U.S. government official write about this about, about a month or two ago saying, look, the Chinese came out in 2002 and said, we have, with the U.S. now distracted in the Middle East, we have a 20-year period of time where we can rise and they won't be able to deal with us. And they were 100% right. We yeah. were, and they did. And hey, good on them. They, they actually planned. They executed a plan. I'm sure things it didn't go entirely according to plan, but by and large, you compare the relative power of China to the U.S. across economics, geopolitics, military, any way you want to look at it, now versus 2002, there's no doubt who won over the last 20 years, and it's China. And yeah. they've leveraged this dollar system to do so. And so it's, COVID was a really important moment because I think there, was, there, were, there were small elements, I think, in defense and intelligence establishments that understood this going into COVID. Post-COVID, when the politicians have to stand up and start explaining to their constituencies why they have to beg China for PPE and for drugs, et cetera, that I think started to shift the mindset and it's great to see because it's it, for a long time, I would take a lot of guff from people. Oh, China could never win, Luke. China could never win. It's been one of the big advantages of doing macro in Cleveland, Ohio. The people telling me China could never win were usually in Washington or New York right. or on, on the West Coast, San Francisco. I'm in Cleveland. I, it's not speculation. China won. They killed right. us. The, the jobs are gone. The factories are gone. Um, and I think post-COVID it finally hit home on the coast. And so yeah. it's very interesting to see, but that is why it is. It's Triffin's dilemma. Uh, they've brilliantly used the dollar system against us because again, we're so busy, the Fed in particular, uh, putting out fires. Oh, if something happens to the asset markets, we have to smooth over the asset markets. Uh, and I, I, I get it, but 
you know, when you have one party to this transaction planning out a long time and the other party putting out fire after fire after fire, and every time you put out that fire, it benefits the other party with the longer term planning. Uh, at some point you get to where we're at. Yeah. I, uh, recently, I think just, a well, at the time of this recording, I think it was a couple of days ago, I put out, or last week put out a video on, uh, kind of how Weimar, how the, un, the unraveling the inflation in Weimar actually kind of, uh, mirrors where we're at. And you kind of put out a tweet kind of similar about that. And when I was doing some research on that, I was looking at like Ray Dalio said, there's like four ways a country gets out of it. Um, and so you talked on a couple of those, but he said the first one could be austerity. And then inflate, then then transfers like taxes, inflation, and then default. Um, but the austerity, right? And of course, nobody wants that. Nobody wants to like nobody wants to, to spend less and live on a budget. Um, but it makes me think of like um, if the if if the whatever government policy were to willingly go back to like revaluing gold to to a sense. So basically, what I think you're kind of saying is you would take all the money in the world take all the debt or all the gold in the world, come up with a 25% reserve or 50 or hundred percent. And then you come up with a new gold price. Um, but isn't that like going back to austerity kind of in a sense, like now we have to live on that budget. I think it depends on how you would structure it. I wouldn't structure the, uh, the new system that way I, for exactly that reason. I don't think anyone would agree to that austerity or, or being on a budget. And I, it wouldn't work in my view. Uh, I think what they would do is, is, effectively say gold is the new uh, reserve asset for all oil transactions. And if you say uh, the value of that gold is a thousand barrels of oil per ounce of gold. And now every nation, you just decentralized the entire economics. It's no longer on Washington. You decentralized it. If the U.S. wants $70 oil for shale, uh, because it's good for our economy, it's good for our international or our, our independence, uh, it's good for manufacturing, etc. Then gold is going to be seventy thousand dollars in the U.S. dollar. If Russia has nothing but oil and they want to subsidize their domestic industry by having cheap oil, let's say they say we're going to make you know ten dollar oil in Russia. Um, so by that same uh, that that same point you would have $10,000 oil or $10,000 gold in or 10,000 ruble oil in, in Russia. Right. And through the gold link, the dollar would collapse against the ruble. Every nation state or every currency block would um, have a choice to make. Do they want expensive oil or do they want cheap oil? And if they have expensive oil, they're going to have expensive gold and a weak currency. And if they have cheap oil, they're going to have cheap gold and a, and a strong currency. And that will then balance out this system where basically everybody takes advantage of this dollar system. Uh, and we take advantage of the dollar system. And when I say we, I mean, Washington takes advantage right. of the dollar system and everybody else does too. So it's basically the U.S. offshoring jobs to these other places. Um, that would end. We would actually, you would see uh, inflation explode. Now you basically be devaluing global debt and, and, and sort of sterilizing on some level, uh, global debt, devaluing it through this process. Uh, but I think that's more than how it would go rather than saying, um, you know, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna reserve gold at, at sort of a traditional gold standard. This way it's pretty straightforward. It's like, listen, you, bought, you get a bunch of oil, you're gonna settle it in a bunch of gold. And you know, you can direct policy that way. Hey, you want a, you want a green new deal? Great. Make, make oil really expensive. Make, make gas really expensive. I guarantee you, you'll get, you know, but 
if you make China settle all of you know set up all of your 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 solar panels for you, now you're going to be basically paying gold for those too at sort of the you know a couple times removed. Yeah. So you're basically it's going to get really expensive for all this. You're going to see inflation in the U.S. and and these nations you know the deficit nations, the biggest of which yeah. is the U.S. You'll see it explode. But as it explodes, dollar will fall. It will incent production. Jobs will come back. You'll basically have a big debt jubilee. The Fed's going to have to basically cap yields at some point in that process, and 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 you know, debt holders lose. Hmm. So it seems like uh, maybe well, well let's, let's tiptoe into politics a little bit. Um, people don't like to talk about politics, but you can't understand macro and money without understanding politics. <laughs> and it seems like uh, we don't have to talk about being good or bad, but it seems like we obviously have a uh, you know we're back into the Paris Accord. Uh, per the Paris Accord, each nation commits what they decide they want to do. So the U.S. has committed to reducing another 30%. We've already reduced 30% in the last 20 years or whatever. Um, India has agreed to um, not increase as a percentage of GDP. So all they got to do is raise GDP and they don't have to commit anything. And China has agreed to not cut anything and actually to peak in 2030. Um, so hmm, that doesn't seem super competitive. Um, and to your point, well, uh, the kind of point that you just made about the solar panels and the oil, talking about trading in oil, um, in, in addition to putting us back in the, into the Paris Accord and saying that we're going to reduce another 30% on top of the 30% we already reduced, we're going to also stop all natural gas and oil production, um, or at least on public lands. Um, so that means we'll have to onshore more of it or import more of it. And then <laughs> to that last point you just made, which was... Um, we want to switch everything to renewables, but we're not going to make those renewables here. So we're going to be buying those from China. So we're technically importing energy, if you want to call it that. And I think uh, I did another video on this where uh, really, oh, not, not exactly, but like money is energy, right? Money is stored energy that allows me to use that energy at a later date. And it looks like the wealth of a nation has always been tied to that energy. Um, I used in this video, I said that I think the recovery after 2008 was actually the oil boom that we had. Uh, more than the than than the Fed intervention, but if we if we um, we reduce our <laughs> reduce our output by thirty percent, we cut all of our energy, so we have to import it, and then we switch to renewables where we're importing that as well. I mean, that's that, that now there's like a political thing. I mean, that's just going to hamstring us even more. <laughs> it's interesting when when I have two thoughts, and both of which I'm going to try to be. I don't know politically correct on some level first politically correct for me how's that okay um, <laughs> what you just laid out sounds like terms of surrender to me um surrender to what i don't know surrender to whom i don't know but that's like it it, it, it sounds like people got together in the you know the, the the crystal palace in versailles and decided listen the americans are going to shrink 30 percent and the chinese are going to keep flat and so I, you know, who not, knows? not flattening. They've agreed to increase through 2030 and peak in 2030 A peak in 2030. And that's, and that's interesting too, right? Because in theory, climate change is what they, the anthropomorphic, is that the word, right? It's, it's humans, humans are causing it. Okay. That's so we need to cut that back. Just came out the other day that China's population declined for the first time since 1949. And so I always just find fascinating the inconsistency or the contradiction between the same people who tell me, Humans are causing carbon, and I'm not going to, this isn't a, a science debate, the science sure. of it. This is just the contradiction that I see in front of my face every day in the last week in particular. Humans cause climate change. We need to do something about it. China's not doing anything about it. China's population is declining. And then 
China's, you know, those same people are like, well, China's screwed because their population's declining economically. They're, they're a dead nation. And I kind of go, you know, it's like the, 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 you know, the gift from John C. Riley, where he's like, look, like it's okay. If, if, if we need a reduction in climate, you know, in human generated carbon emissions and China's population's declining, like that's in theory, like, like that's as good as it gets, right? That's what, that's what you yeah. want. You, fewer humans are going to generate less carbon. But then the same, like in the very next breath, these same people will say, well, China's economy is screwed. They're done as a nation because their population, they're in demographic decline. And I, I don't know what to make of, of it all, quite frankly. I don't, it, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to make of it all. I, it, yeah. it, it's, I'm left scratching my head. Who's making the decisions? Why are they making those decisions? Um, it's above my pay grade. Yeah. Well, uh, and again, uh, not, not even trying to get into the science of it all. On that video that I made about that, I, I didn't talk about the science. So I just talked about the agreement. And uh, I got a bunch of comments that said, Mark, you're an idiot. You don't know anything about science. And I said, hey, this wasn't about science. I was just talking about the agreement that was made. I know about agreements. I've done, I've done a bunch of them. Uh, um, but um, so, you know, just again, with that macro lens, especially kind of looking out uh, over the next decade. So I have this working thesis I'm going to work, I'm going to present in Miami, but uh you know, about these cycles converging, political cycles, economic cycles, and technology cycles. And it, uh, China's peaking in 2030. We're going down. Um, you know, we have, uh, we have, so we have all these competing things. We have the, you know, the NGOs and World Economic Forum saying that we'll own nothing, we'll be happy. Uh, obviously, we see, but we, you know, we understand kind of where that's going. Uh, the, we have the Triffin's dilemma where we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, and uh, without energy, we really don't stand a chance. And if we're getting rid of our energy at the same time. So, um, like, what's the end game here? Like, where do you see this over the next, you know, several years uh, kind of going? I mean, we, we can't grow out of the debt. Um, a lot of people are talking about, obviously, this great reset, like a debt jubilee, possibly. I mean, do you think that, I mean, I get what you're saying about going back to, you know, energy, oil, or gold, but if we're not going to have any energy, that's not really in play. So, I mean, what is? Well, I think you would have energy, but what you would lose is basically what the, what, what the U.S. had under seven, from 71 to, to present was basically the ability to print energy. It was, a, it was a violation of physics. It was we were printing money for oil and the Russians had to, the Soviets had to lift it out of the ground. And at the crux of why we won the Cold War. We, we couldn't run out of money. They could. They, they had to get their capital out of real and we could just create it willy nilly. Um, when you talk about the Great Reset, you need to delever. I think you got to go back to you know, if they don't get the debt to GDP down, the system will collapse. This debt back system. And this is in the interests of, um, you know, it's their system, right? It's the global central banks. It's their system. It will collapse they got to get that the GDP down. You can't just keep doing this. And I think post-COVID, they reached that point where the can can't be kicked any further. And so if you're going to do that, you're going to need to really screw over bondholders on a real basis. Um, but you're going to need some sort of unifying event or events that makes people not question it, right? So in World War II, bondholders got killed on a real basis, but nobody complained because it would be considered unpatriotic to do so. Yeah. Um, and so 
you know, who can complain against build back better from COVID? It's COVID relief. You can like, so what if you lose all your money on your, you know, if you lose your, you know, a lot of money on a real basis on your bonds, this is bigger than that. This is COVID. This is recovery. This is build back better. And then, you know, why waiting in the wings? We, you know, and this is going to sound conspiratorial, I know, but I'm just watching what I'm watching. Waiting in the wings, we have climate change, the climate emergency. We need to spend a lot to address the climate emergency. We have central banks talking about um, macro prudential impacts to the banking system of like, like these guys haven't done the best job managing the economy. Now they're going to take on this climate science too. Like they really, they're going to cool the earth with money. Right. So (laughs) to my eyes, as through my macro lens, what I see are two emergencies that make it very hard. I mean, who can be against climate emergency? Don't you have a heart? Don't you have kids? You know, so when they start QEing, you know, when they start issuing and then QEing climate bonds in two to five years, um, who can be against that? They're acting in the best interest of the economy. They're acting in the best interest of humanity and build back better. Hey, we, you know, COVID knocked us down. We're going to come back. Who can be against coming back from COVID? It's, it's, sure. it's wartime, right? How many times have we heard? It's like wartime. It's like wartime. Yeah. It's like wartime. So I, I think what when you talk about the Great Reset and the Debt Jubilee and what I, I think we've begun it. And I think what we're talking about here is basically, um, you know, a bond fire. I think people that own bonds are going to go from wearing diamonds to wearing cubic zirconia to wearing Cracker Jack on a string, um, you know, to, to paraphrase one of our rules phrases uh, over the next two years, five years, 10 years. I, I doubt it's I doubt it's 10 years. I, my guess is it's probably within five years that the real the real value of those bonds will deteriorate. You're seeing that already. And, and you know, at any denominated point denominated in fiat because they're denominated in fiat. And, and at any point in time, critically, if there are policy errors, if the central banks don't do enough, if there's not enough stimulus, if the stimulus stops, if we go to austerity, those bonds are going to be very valuable that for a period of time, um, you know, because again, at 130% that the GDP, we're beyond, if, if they go into austerity, nominal default on those bonds, sovereign debt, even the United States uh, will quickly become, will, will quickly get put on the table. Yeah. And so, you know, the odds that these that these Western nations in particular, but global sovereigns more broadly will default nominally on sovereign debt uh, for lack of printing money. Uh, it could happen. It would be historically unique. There's basically nobody that's ever done that. Hmm. Well, that's good stuff. We've uh, kind of come to the end of the time. I do want to ask one more question, though, sure. and that is uh, you talked about um, replacing the bond, the treasury bond as an asset, right? We need another reserve asset and you threw out, um, you threw out gold and Bitcoin. Um, which, you know, I think are both likely candidates. I, I favor one over the other. Uh, however, it seems like they maybe have a third option that they're cooking up and those are the SDRs. And so it seems like they maybe want to try to transition us to these SDRs. We're talking about a $650 billion SDR issuance right now. Um, and uh, maybe the SDRs become the new treasury reserve asset, um, which seems kind of weird for me to understand because the SDRs are made up of fiat, so like what's back in the fiat, the SDR, well, what's back in the SDR fiat. And it's like this like circular motion, but it seems like that's maybe what they're going to try. What do you think about that? And is there any hope of that working? Or do you think maybe that's like an interim step and then eventually they have to go to a gold or Bitcoin? It depends how they structure it. Um, if you go back to 2011, early 2011, the IMF was headed up by Dominique Strauss-Kahn or DSK back then. And they did a white paper. It looked at pricing um, oil and gold in SDRs instead of dollars. 
And if you did that, uh, that would work because now you can manage, again, there's that cross rate of oil and gold through the SDR. And if you want to import, if you want to import uh, oil, you got to come up with SDRs, which means you got to sell domestic currency and buy up the other currencies in the basket in the requisite amounts to create a basket, which means you're going to be weakening your currency, uh, buying the others, strengthening the others. Um, and then if it's convertible into gold, right, there's going to be this ratio of gold, oil and gold implied by SDR pricing of both. You would achieve largely the same thing as basically setting oil and gold uh, to a ratio to each other, basically devaluing oil against gold uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and maintaining that ratio. You know, the, the problems with the currency systems over the last 100 years, is you, you first you peg the dollar to gold and you, and you, and you overprinted dollars. Then you peg the dollar to oil. And again, it lasted longer, but then you overprinted dollars. And so the fix is really pegging oil to gold at a really big number, you know, basically making gold big enough to serve that role. So you could do yeah. it with SDRs. Um, you would get to the same place. It would be hugely, you, know, you, you, you would line up a, a chart of those countries running current account surpluses, current account deficits, and the nations running big current account deficits would see their currencies collapse against those running big current account surpluses. Um, and so suddenly domestic production in the U S would be much more attractive relative to foreign production. So, you know, that Audi and that Porsche would, you know, you know, a, a mid-tier Audi would go from 60 grand to 200 grand <laughs> and a nice Cadillac would go from, you know, 60 grand to 30 grand. And all of a sudden GM would say, wow, Hey, let's, let's make cars in the U S again, that let's, yeah. let's make all of it in the U S and we need more chips. Hey, Intel, can you build three or four fabs? Yeah. Okay. You know, so there's, there's a lead time there to it, but the SDR would, would effectively be, the same type of dynamic. And once you realize that, it would still imply that gold goes to the moon. Bitcoin goes to the moon. Uh, stocks likely go to the moon. Inflation takes off. Bonds lose big time on a real basis. Got it. Well, we'll wrap it up with that. So I guess the message is uh, lots of inflation in the future. Uh, get some hard assets. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, again, it's, it's so political. That's the thing is at any point in time, they could try austerity. And that's the thing you have to watch for as an investor. And that's what I would tell people listening is, is you got to pay attention to the politics or, you know, the, 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 the gridlock in Washington, if it comes, if they're, if they can't do the stimulus, if we go back then an austerity comes on to, uh, you know, onto the, onto the table as an option for whatever reason you want to own dollars and you want to own volatility and very little else. Cause pretty much everything else is going to go down, uh, for the, but, uh, again, um, that's, that's very, it's not a politically palatable option and you yeah. don't want to see what happens the next election cycle after that happens. Cause yeah. that's when you get, you know, Trump wasn't Hitler as some people thought you would start to actually get an actual Hitler potentially yeah. on the table. Yeah. If you do extended austerity. Cool. All right. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up with that, Luke. That's a, uh, that's uh, definitely enough to get us going for the day. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Let me try that again. Thanks for having me on Mark. I appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to make sure we'll link to your newsletter and to your Twitter handle down below. Anything else that you want to direct people to that they should be watching? No, I just uh, uh, check us out at, uh, at the, the website or at our Twitter handle and uh, uh, they'll, they'll find out all they need to know uh, either or both of those places. Okay. Thanks so much, Luke. All right. Thank you, Mark. 